Hey there, my name is Patrick Rothfuss, and this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. listening to the great big beautiful podcast this week on the show but vader is interesting because like there is something kind of you know bdsm sort of sexy about like that big you know he's uh he's got a whole rig (laughs) whatever else but at the same time like he's a he's a child murderer so that kind of dings the sexy for me just a little bit is the child murder it's hard to overlook it and actually out of all seriousness that was one of the for me the great creative missteps of the prequels whatever people feel about the prequels some people adore them and some people despise them and uh you know you really want to buy vader's redemption at the end of return of the jedi and then that's easier when you don't see him abusing his wife uh or murdering kids here's your host jamie green Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube at thegbbpodcast. And I don't know how you found us today, but we can be downloaded from pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. That would be iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, any of those places. You can find all the links on our website at thegbbpodcast.com. Welcome back, and Happy New Year! Welcome to 2019! Um, I, one of my things this year is that I realized in these upfront intro bits before we actually get to the interview, I end up babbling quite a bit, whether it's just me or uh, if I have a co-host on, we end up babbling and blathering on, and I'm pretty sure you don't come here to hear me. Uh, at, at least me just kind of drone on and on. So I'm going to try to cut these to be a little bit shorter than they have been. I know there have been a few episodes in the past where I've gone on 10, 15 minutes. And you're not here for that. I know you're not. You know you're not. Let's stop pretending otherwise. Uh, let's just get right into the meat of it. We're starting off 2019 strong. We've got Chuck Wendig. And this has been an interview I've been wanting to do for quite a while. And Chuck and I sat down a couple weeks ago, back in uh, oh, back in 2018, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. We, um, primarily and most importantly, we talk about apples. So uh, you know, buckle up, uh, get in, you prepare yourself. This is a this is a we geek out about uh, produce quite a bit here. Uh, we talk about apples, but we do talk about some other things in case you're interested in, oh, I don't know, the books that he writes or the comics that he writes or Star Wars, things like that. I mean, he's got opinions on those, and we do talk about those. But clearly, I mean, apples are, are why we're here. Uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit about the heirloom apples and all the different varieties, and we we touch on bananas. Um, so, you know, equal opportunity there. Uh, but... In all seriousness, this is a great conversation. We do talk a lot about um, his his process, his writing, the books that he's done. We we touch on um, you know the the situation that happened with Marvel a few months ago, but uh, we don't dwell on it. We talk about daily routines, getting the words out, advices, advice, advices, advice for writers, 
Um, it's a, it's a great conversation and I told you I was going to stop babbling and here I am babbling. So let's just get to it. Uh, Chuck Wendig, welcome to 2019. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for subscribing. We're, we, um, are so excited that you've continued to come along for the ride. We have so many great conversations and so many great episodes coming up in the new year. Um, hit subscribe, stick around, and I will see you guys next week. Take care. Um, let's get this out of the way first because I'm sure you're tired of talking about it. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just clear the decks. Sure. What's your favorite heirloom apple? Oh, good question. A good question. Really, the the biggest question of them all. Yeah, I, I mean, I we'll start. I get it strong. so often. We got to start big. Uh, you know, I think any russet is a good apple. So many yeah. good russets: golden russet, brown russet, um, razzers russet. They're all tasty, tasty treats. Yeah. Um. So, okay, I gotta ask. Really, I mean, like, half joking, but it's mostly serious. Like, what what got you into this? Because I've seen you on Twitter. You, you you don't shut up about the heirloom apples when you get <laughs> when you get on a tear. And just like, where did that come from? Uh, I mean, like the long, long story of it is like I used to be a very uh, like hesitant eater, like as a kid growing up. Like, okay, I didn't like certain foods, and I was really weird about textures of foods, uh, and I didn't like seafood. I I just really wouldn't eat a whole lot of different things. I mean, which is not super weird like right. kid, kids in general are pretty much like is it chicken fingers then i would like it in my mouth otherwise <laughs> right. keep it away from me monster uh so but I, you know in my like i was still and i was still kind of a, a picky eater even into my like 30s uh not weirdly picky but just yeah. kind of like oh i don't know if i like that food or not sure okay. and so uh in my 30s like i sort of experienced this thing where i was like oh food is actually good and maybe people just didn't know how to use to cook it um like things like asparagus and brussels sprouts were boiled you know once upon a yeah. time and they were terrible yeah uh, and you know you come to really appreciate them and so with that um sort of my awakening of food interests and uh food politics and uh, also the uh, advent of so many farmers markets popping up everywhere. I sh- I went to our local farmers market and there was an orchard there. And I mean, I had always gotten your kind of standard array of apples, you know, the honey crisps and the uh, gala right. and you know whatever. The ones uh, you find in every supermarket. Yeah, the ones you find in every supermarket and honestly every farmers market because that's generally speaking what um, you know fruit producers have. Mm-hmm. But then there was this uh, orchard there, uh, North Star. And they had these boxes of apples that were just like, I was like, you're making these up. These aren't real. <laughs> these aren't, these totally aren't real apples. Names. <laughs> there are not this many kinds of apples. And then you look and there's like 15,000 varieties of heirloom apple. And uh, and that doesn't even necessarily include a lot of the crab apples. Some of them more because um, most apples are not from North America. The crab apples are. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, and there's a lot of interesting history behind the heirlooms and how they come about and also how they get. Um, uh, you know, pushed out of the picture for a long time because mm-hmm. of the need to be able to ship sort of uh, tough, you know, uh, able to be shipped food. And so you get like beautiful but poorly, uh, you know, poorly designed um, for taste uh, products. Right, right. So uh, it was just kind of like a weird thing. And so many of them tasted so different. Like they tasted, some of them don't taste like apples at all. And some of them taste, they have these funky sort of licorice notes. And some of them taste more like other fruits than they do apples and then when you get into crab apples they just get super goofy so i it was mostly just a joke i was like people don't know that these are even a th- i didn't know they were a thing so i just yeah. started tweeting about it and uh sure enough people are fascinated by <laughs> so many different kinds of apples. apparently and half of them so i don't think some people still think i make everything up <laughs> are you this way with other fruit or is it just apples it's mostly just apples uh, apples are really like the 
Uh, though you can get other, um, there's some good varietals for uh, vegetables that are that way too. Yeah, uh, tomatoes in particular have a really great uh, heirloom yeah. sort of tradition. Y- you know what I heard? I I, I want to say it was an NPR story. I blame every good story I have yep. on NPR. God damn it, NPR! Yeah, I know, right? Um, they did a story about you know apples and fruit and how you know exactly what you were saying. How the the few varieties that we get were engineered to travel and and look good but they weren't necessarily they're not necessarily the best tasting one and the story i think was about apples but they had this it was just like this throwaway comment that there are almost as many varieties of bananas as there are apples yeah the banana thing is weird but we only ever see one kind of banana in the stores or in farmers markets because that's the one that can be shipped all around the world. But it's well, like, and it's actually not the trick with bananas too. Is it's uh, it's a worse thing than that because it's not simply about shipping anymore. Um, and disease killed off a great deal of the world's bananas. I didn't uh, know so that. Uh, the type we eat is resilient to this disease, uh, and it's becoming less resilient to it. So actually, we may even lose the banana we have. Uh, but yeah, no, that's the one bananas, not only the part of it started with the shipping, but then it became a, a disease issue. And so, yeah. oops, oops. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm on a, like, I want to go taste some of these other bananas. Like I've, yeah. I've been, I've been to Asia, I've been to Africa and I've had like plantains and the, the standard bananas that they have over there. And there a lot of them are a lot smaller and they, they are, they're a lot sweeter, but like, yeah, there's one in like in Hawaii called, and I think it's in Asia too, called the apple banana. Okay. It has nothing to do with apples. But yeah, that's just the name, called, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So I like I, that just blew my mind that there are as many varieties of bananas. Something that you think that like, oh, a banana is a banana, right? Yeah. No, well, it's like coffee. I mean, coffee is so wildly different wherever you grow it. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating that it picks up all these different sort of local notes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming to my fruit podcast. I know exactly. <laughs> exactly. Fruit Incorporated, everybody. <laughs> Um, all right, seriously, yep. um, I, yes. and I know, I know you've this legitimately you have talked to death, but the whole Marvel thing, oh, yeah. um, I mean, so Marvel seems, I mean, from, from an outsider's perspective, and I don't know if you have a different perspective being, you know, inside the club or not, but they seem to have sort of like multiple personality disorder, you know, like they, they, they make at least the effort to say, look, here are some really wonderfully diverse characters. We've got Kamala Khan, we've got Miles Morales. But then on the other hand, they like, they do shit like they did to you or they do to, you know, like with Guardians and, you know, Chelsea Kane. Yeah. Yeah. And Chelsea Kane. Exactly. And so it's like, they, they seem to give a lot of lip service to wanting to do right by the audience but then cave when it becomes too difficult. I mean, is that an is that a fair assessment, or do you see it differently? I don't. I don't know. Uh, that's like it's yeah. one of those things where I don't have a great lens into why it's that way. I mean, my suspicion is that um, you're looking at something because I mean, I know a lot of the people who work inside Marvel editors and stuff, and they're great. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's so many wonderful people. It's like publishing. There's so many people who work inside the comic book world that are they're great. They love comics and they're quote unquote SJWs, you know what I mean? So right, there, right. there's like, no, but at the higher up levels, you get a certain kind of um, conservative output, um, whether you're talking about Ike Perlmutter or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or the kind of the, some of the stories behind C.B. Sabolsky's presence there in terms yeah. of his masquerading as an, an Asian writer. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, my assumption is that all of that stuff is sort of tangled up in sort of Disney upper echelons or uh, Marvel upper echelons and not Disney. Uh, but I don't know. It comes from mm-hmm. so many different angles this could have come from or uh, 
where it started and where it ended, I don't really exactly know. And I probably yeah. never will. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's no secret that it you sort of at least the explanation that they gave was because of, you know, your tweets and the comments that you put out on Twitter. But yeah. you continue to be very active on social media. I mean, you you use Twitter as a place, you know, for dumb jokes, which is how Twitter was intended. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? That's what it started for. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be for. I've, but I've I preferred so you, that part. Yeah. Exactly. Like you use it as a place to just, you know, write dumb jokes or, you know, or you also use it as a place to, to talk about serious politics and you use it as a device to share writing tips and advice about the industry to people who are trying to break in. Uh, generally speaking, do you think because social media is so often portrayed as as a vice and as as a handicap, yeah. do you think that it that it helps or hinders writers nowadays? Well, it's again one of those many headed questions. Yeah, uh, I can speak for myself in that professionally, it has generally helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. I mean, first of all, it's allowed me to know so many different writers. Um, one of the very very nice people who uh, is willing to go to bat for me time and time again, and. Uh, uh, refer to my blog and refer people to me and my blog is Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, it, that's really because of Twitter that I get to even talk to her. And I, I have reminded her, I'm like, I don't, I think you're probably doing your literary legacy a grave disservice by associating <laughs> with me at all. You're like, you just keep not like, I'm fine. I'm good. Thank you for doing it. But please don't hurt yourself anymore. Uh, just for me. Uh, but she continues to do that. So, I mean, and you get to talk to agents and editors. Um, so it's not even that it's great for selling books, but it is great for sort of water cooler author industry talk. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I got my the Star Wars books. I got them literally by tweeting about wanting to write Star Wars. Yeah. Um, I You know, we had uh, Sam Sykes and I, the uh, fellow author, fantasy author. And uh, we, you know, tweeted that silly story about yeah. slasher killers at a camp. And that turned into a sci-fi movie. <laughs> so it's like, you know, they, they ended up on TV. So it's like, you know, Twitter has been very good for me personally. It just happens to be terrible globally. <laughs> like, as a sort of a global phenomenon, it's a horrible, terrible thing. Um, but it's been good for me personally. And I know, I mean, there's the one danger of it where I think authors can either blow up their careers by sort of... Um, going on there when they're not really in control of their persona like mm-hmm. you know it's not a great place to go to be like i'm like an out of control mad not in control mad but out of control mad. right uh and it's not a great place to spend all of your time like you do have to look away from sauron's <laughs> gaze once in a while and what yeah i know right <laughs> very hard uh so those those could be sort of downsides to it but i think you know as a rule it's not the worst place to be it's a good community because we all sit like alone in our shame boxes writing our stories. Yeah. Uh, which is very nice. I mean, actually, I really like doing that and I don't mind the isolation of it, but sometimes it is nice to sort of be able to reach out to the authorial world as it is and to say hi. Yeah. It, I know when everything first happened with Marvel, you, there was a concern that it would have like a, like a chilling effect, I guess, among creators and people would be hesitant to put themselves out there or, or just kind of speak their mind or be themselves. Have you noticed that in the last couple of months? I mean, it's hard to say. Um, first of all, I'm not super plugged into the comic book world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have been sort of I've received a lot of like back channel communication from comic book writers who yeah. uh, do feel that they were going to be quieter on Twitter and either leave Twitter or uh, or they had already been quiet because, you know, what happened to me is really not unique. I mean, I ex- experienced a lot of stories uh, from behind, you know, back channel stuff that this has happened to people a lot just Mm. as it turns out, they don't talk about it because they don't want to blow up their comic career over it, but I don't really have much of a comic (laughs) career. Uh, so I'm in a privileged place that I can maybe talk about it a little bit. Um, 
So, you know, I think maybe it has on the comic book side. I don't know that it has really on the author side because publishers are generally not, you know, in terms of book publishing is not really the same kind of thing. So do you think, do you think that this this is an issue that's sort of kind of centered on the comic book industry and doesn't, doesn't reach out wider than that? Possibly in part because the comic book industry is largely about pre-existing intellectual property, pre-owned stuff. Uh, so you're generally doing work for somebody else. Uh, whereas in publishing, that's, I mean, you get that obviously there's tie in work. Um, but it does never makes as big of a noise or a splash, uh, as you, you plus also comics now have comics gate. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the books kind of had the sad puppies and the rabbit puppies, but it never really, it, you know, it never really felt like much. Yeah. Uh, so, but the comics gate is a much bigger, uh, it's kind of really mirroring Gamergate in terms of how it's, and I mean, obviously the game industry has had its, sure. uh, z- similar issues of people who have been silenced and kicked off of Jessica price, obviously, um, you know, I saw some, someone recent too was kicked off. So it's just sort of a thing that happens. Uh, and yeah. I think it's bigger in those industries than book publishing. Book publishing has this, is like, we're a little more, I don't know if it's narrow or niche or bigger. I don't know what it is, uh, yeah. but we all kind of own our work for the most part. So it's not as a, uh, not as clean an issue for us. Yeah. That's a good point. You can, you can go out and badmouth your own characters and your own property. And, you know, the publisher might not like it, but it's not like, I mean, they're, it's not Marvel worried about, spider-man or something like that it's where they have right. millions of dollars invested in it yes like that was the thing you know with the marvel thing they kept talking about how the the attention that my vulgarity my politics were bringing to the books the attention now the only attention it was getting was from kind of a uh, hard right wing right channels which tells me who they were listening to mm-hmm. um but that still was their concern was the attention the attention yeah. and uh with book publishing the attention is only going to help to be absolutely honest with you so yeah do you think that we're ever going to live in a post-Twitter society? <laughs> I, I don't know. With climate change, we're going to live in a post-a-lot <laughs> society. A post-everything society. Yeah, post-everything. <laughs> a post-not-boiling seas. Uh, we'll all be yelling at each other in, like, conch shells as we swim in a boiling ocean. Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I, there is, I do almost feel like Twitter has a, a fuse, and it's slowly burning down. Yeah. Uh, you can see it with social media in terms of Tumblr kind of doing its thing now, and... Uh, you know, Patreon, like everybody, they're kind of Fosta Sesta has had some weird sort of ramifications. And I do wonder when Twitter is going to start to, um, it's already starting to kick people off it. Not, I don't mean kick people off it in a literal sense, though. It push people too, away. But I mean, yeah, yeah, push people away. Yeah. Um, you know, some, some big presences are sort of like starting to peel back from it just as they are from Facebook. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's probably got a deadline. I just don't know when it is. Yeah. It's interesting because when, you know, when Facebook and Twitter first really exploded, I noticed mostly among creators and creative people that they were, you were hearing a lot of, you know, this is the way to, to market yourself. You don't need a blog anymore. You don't need a personal blog. Everything can be done (laughs) through social media. And now you're hearing the exact opposite. Yeah, exactly. Oops. And now it's like, you need a place that you own and control. You can't rely on somebody else's platform. And people are moving back to their own personal blogs. Well, here's an interesting point of fact. When when Sam and I wrote that story on Twitter Mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, it came time to option it, both the lawyers on the side of um, us and on the side of the other party were, uh, came to the decision that we don't actually own those tweets. Yeah. Uh, that the government, not Twitter, the government has decided that the social media uh, sites own the information because it ultimately allows the government to say, like, hey, we want to harvest the DMs of a 
suspect or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, they have the right to do that. And Twitter can give that to them because technically Twitter owns it. Uh, Twitter claims it doesn't. But theoretically, governmentally, and legally speaking, Twitter can harvest all of that for content and pay. Right. So it's definitely a great time. <laughs> you know, and of course, Twitter could also just kick you off at any time and then you will never access your tweets again. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely is a thing to own your blog and uh, a newsletter and whatever else you can do. And I think there was a, a, a component, too, where publishers were... Um, for a time, increasingly reliant on authors and social media to just sort of do their own marketing. Exactly. Turns out doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> okay, you you brought it up there. How do you option a tweet thread? Like, I mean, like th- this must have been uncharted territory for the lawyers. This was uncharted. I'm not. Sh- <laughs> I'm not sure it has been done before. I've not heard of it being done before. Uh, so yeah, like we had multiple parties interested in optioning it, and so it was wow. just. It, it sort of added a few steps to the negotiation time of to figure out how you even do that. Um, for us, it mostly just sort of got folded into sort of production fees because we ended up as uh, producers on the film. Yeah, so. that's nuts. I mean, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's a weird world. It really is. Like sometimes I, I look at what's happening and it's like, you know, people people are still out there like pounding the pavement, sending emails, trying to get a book published. And you're out there pub- making a movie out of your tweets. And it just now, you know, I feel bad. My, like, my agent was like, I have to tell my other clients why, you know, their their book that they love so much is not going to be a movie. But why my other clients dumb tweets are now a movie. <laughs> Um, so one of my co-hosts wanted me to ask, this is a happier, happier Vader topics. She, she wanted me to ask you about sexy Vader. So talk to us about sexy Vader. <laughs> is there a question? And that's like, what I said. I said, do you, what do you want me to ask him? Is there a specific question? She's like, no, just tell him to talk about sexy Vader. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I do wonder about sexy Vader because like, there's obviously a sexy Thanos thing. Yeah. Which I don't get, but like other people assure me it's a real thing. Oh, it's a real thing. And uh, yeah. yeah, like thick, thick Thanos. Yeah, yeah. Daddy, space daddy. He's like, and there's like pictures of him being kind of like his naked butt sort of showing. It's okay. just, that's disturbing. That's it's He killed disturbing. half of all cr- living things. Yeah, he killed, yeah, <laughs> half of all, I think sentient creatures, right? Yeah. He just wiped them out with his, just gone. The, yeah. with the snapping. So, uh, but Vader is interesting because like there is something kind of, you know, BDSM sort of sexy about like that big, you know, he's, uh, he's got a whole rig. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever else. But at the same time, like he's a, he's a child murderer. Uh, <laughs> so that kind of dings the sexy for me just a little bit. Is the child murder, the child murder. Just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah it kind of softens you, the blow. You can't the, overlook yeah. that part of him. It's hard to overlook it. And actually out of all seriousness, that was one of the, for me, the great creative missteps of the prequels. Whatever people feel about the prequels, some people adore them and some people despise them. Yeah. Um, one of the great missteps for me was turning Anakin into not only a monster, but super easy. He was like, I'm Anakin. I'm going to save the day. Don't don't hurt. Oh, I'm going to kill kids. Like, it just looks like I mean, it was like he blinked and now he's just I'm going to kill some children. It's fine. Don't even worry about it. And, uh, you know, you really want to buy Vader's redemption at the end of Return of the Jedi. And then that's easier when you don't see him abusing his wife yeah. uh, or murdering kids. Yeah, or murdering kids. Just, that's a lot easier. Like yeah. He could have been like an evil guy with honor, like lawful evil. Like, I want to save the galaxy and to do this, I have to hunt down the Jedi. That's kind of evil, but like you get it, right? Because he's like, he's in his head, it's been twisted that the Jedi are bad. Yeah. But then just like straight up slaughtering wild or younglings yeah. is not, uh, not cool. Not cool, Vader. Not cool, Anakin. And the other thing that people often forget, because I think it's in a movie that people would rather forget, was when he went <laughs> after his mother and killed that whole clan of, of sand yeah. people. I mean, that was like, they yeah. were innocent. There was women and children there too. And like, he yeah. just killed them all without a second thought. 
And he also was super creepy with Padme in oh. that, that movie. Like, How about all three creeper. of them? He was super creepy with her. Well, at least in the first one, he was just a kid. You're like, fine. He's a little <laughs> cherub cheeked baby. Yeah. 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 No, that second one, total creep. Creep factor oh, dialed up to 11. Total creep. Yeah. What the heck, Anna? <laughs> um, all right. So, but at this point in your career, you, we're talking about Star Wars, but you've written, yeah. like, unless I've miscounted, you've written more than like 20 books, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Do you feel that Star Wars has overshadowed your career? There is that danger, and it's. Um, I think I'm coming back out the other side of that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, because it was such a big thing. I mean, it was on one hand great, and then it got me um, to the New York Times bestseller list, and it um, was the thing that sort of, quote unquote, brought me into people's libraries. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, if they've never heard of me, now they maybe have. Uh, I'm finally just starting to see sort of that. Uh, you know, that cascade where people are like, oh, I'm reading the Miriam Black books now, which used to be kind of the thing for me, even though I had other books that sold maybe better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always like the Miriam Black books were what people always wanted to talk about. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see that sort of slowly, the very slowly breaking glass of like, you know, you can watch the cracks. Uh, it's like that lightning in slow motion, yeah. that, like, yeah. that like weird, like <laughs> lightning threading the sky gently. So, um, yeah, I mean, it maybe did overshadow it a little bit. Um, it was probably good in the the short term i think it's just important to be able to get back out of that and i think that's one of the dangers and i could feel it right i could feel the danger of uh star wars and tie-in fiction because it's sort of cool yeah to just be sort of involved in that world and to know secrets and um to get the attention mm-hmm. for it and like i mean I, it's not like i don't love star wars it's literally one of my favorite things so to be involved with it in any way shape or form is kind of narcotic and so um to you know you want to kind of keep doing it but you also have to recognize that like i i have to work on my own stuff or or i run the risk of just sort of being in a star wars ditch yeah for the rest of my life yeah. so um you know it's good i have i have some uh books coming out that i think are maybe gonna be the things that overshadow star wars so we'll see <laughs> yeah. well fingers crossed yeah are there any regrets no, no no i'm actually super happy with the way it all went yeah. and um super happy with the people i worked with and the books I put out. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the only quote unquote regret is that the first book I had an incredibly narrow timeline uh, on which to work it. So I would have, uh, I mean, I don't know that I would have done things too differently because there wasn't m- much room. I do wish that uh, we weren't trapped by that space before the force awakens, because there was so much we couldn't do both in terms of time and in terms of narrative that we could do with the latter two books, because they'd sort of uncorked the bottle at that point. And we could talk about some stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it was like really like constantly trimming and narrowing it down and I couldn't do too much. There was the, the, the fences were much tighter in, in the meadow on that first book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that uh, timeline is, was kind of insane because the tweet that got you the job between that tweet and the book coming off press was one year. Exactly. Right. Literally one year. That was really weird. So yeah. how much time did you actually have to write? I had a, a month. One month, one and that month. was the trick. One month, because what happened was, you know, I uh, tweeted it on September 4th. Uh, by October, I had met with them at New York Comic Con, and they had uh, offered me to pitch at least, if not offered me the job. Mm-hmm. They said I was good, and, and no one else was pitching, so it was okay, at least to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote up a treatment, pitched it, and so I essentially kind of got the work by like November, December, officially contracts and all that stuff signed. And so I was going to start like January 1st, and I, it, I had it fortunately time out to... Um, I have I work in a writing shed for those who don't know. And so the writing shed was literally being done that December and it was open for business January 1st. So it was timing out very well. And uh, 
I originally had about three months to write the book. And so the book was, was originally coming out the following November. And then my editor called and it was like, hey, good news. The book is going to come out two months earlier. Oh, oh that's awesome. Fantastic. And she's like, funny side effect of that. It also means we're going to need the book two months earlier. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, no. So and at that point, you can't be like, well, no. Yeah. I mean, like, screw you. I mean, I guess I could have been. But like, I was so excited. Uh, and it's honestly, as much as a month is a short time, I've written several of my books in that. Like the um, second, the first Miriam Black book took me, I think, five years. Mm. And then the second one took me 30 days. So, I mean, it does. It, I can do it. Yeah. Um, it's not ideal, a robust but it's treatment. It's not ideal, yeah. right. And it's not like I wrote it in 30 days and then I just, they printed it. Like right. some people act that way. Like I just wrote this book and that's like they went to press with it. <laughs> uh, you know, we did. Edit yeah, their editors exist. Yeah. yeah, editors <laughs> exist and periods of, we did multiple drafts. So, um, yeah, no, but it was, so it was a really tight timeline, but we did it. That's incredible. Um, how did that compare to, I guess the, the two other, uh, aftermath books, but your normal, like quote unquote, normal book that you were, that you're writing, uh, in terms of the timelines, um, usually like the following two took me, I think about three months, three to four months of pop, which is, is about right for me for yeah. writing a first draft of a book. I was usually writing like anywhere between two to five books a year, <laughs> which is a lot. And actually the star Wars stuff. You know, I, I jokingly asked, like, hey, I want to write Star Wars on Twitter. And then it happened. But I, I had contracts like I was writing other books. So I had to kind of like suddenly elbow a bunch of room in my schedule mm -hmm. to sort of cram these other books into as well. Um, so it worked out. It was pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's nuts. It was. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, you know, we, we, we mentioned a little bit about fans. And I know I, I know you had your fair share of interaction with fans both positive and negative oh but, yeah you know when we were talking about social media and twitter and and giving power to creative people to market themselves to tweet and get a job or get a movie made out of your tweets whatever it also gives a megaphone to absolutely everybody it does um does that get frustrating for you? I mean, whether or not they're, you know, I guess attacking you for whatever they feel is required to attack you about, or just people have the same level of, of not authority, but they have the same access, level maybe. of, they have the same access to the same voice, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, that's good because I shouldn't have more access or more voice than someone mm -hmm. who doesn't do what I do. Um, I mean, realistically, that's not, wouldn't be fair. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. like, well, I'm me, so I get more. Um, right. I, you know, I think it's good. And in a sense that there's a, a more even playing field, but you know, with the whole like Marvel thing that happened, like it came out afterward that, so there were so many uh, bot and sock puppet accounts tied yeah. into that. And so um, it becomes hard to determine who's even real at that point. And those fake accounts have theoretical access as well. Um, and so that can theoretically mean one person who's in control of whatever the bots are can have 100 amplification voices out there. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, it's one thing when it's like, well, I think it's great that everybody can be heard, but it's also not great that everybody can be um, bullhorns of harassment and abuse, uh, which is ultimately a lot of what goes on there. And Twitter is turns out super bad at handling that and they yeah. kind of like yeah i think they've gotten worse like I, I used to report things and i would say maybe like one out of ten twitter would be like good point that person <laughs> who said you should die is bad now it's like it's a none it's a zero for zero i'm getting nothing yeah. on tweets that are you know using slurs and twitter just doesn't care and yeah. so um that's where it becomes 
to me more of an issue. It's not even just about the access. It's about the abuses that uh, happen on there and that Twitter is sort of happy to have, I think in part because it inflates their numbers artificially. So mm-hmm. it allows them to be valued at a higher way than maybe they really are. Yeah. Uh, so and obviously it helped elect our president. Yeah. Which hey. is so great. Surprise. Surprise. That, <laughs> who, who thought that would happen in this weird yeah. dystopian back to the future two sort of experience? <laughs> we all should have seen it coming, but yeah. none of us none of us really thought it was a possibility. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think we thought it was a possibility. I think no. that's really what it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not going to go down that rabbit nope. hole because I, I don't want to end up crying after no, this. So, no. um, you know, that being said, I I also recognize that so much of what we hear, the, so much of that narrative about the fans is is driven by these negative stories and, and by the bots. And, and uh, yeah, and it's not it's not reasonable. Fans are by a rule. Great. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, as we're coming up to the end of the year, you know, one of the things that many people do is they look back in the year. I mean, is there is there like a coolest or most awesome thing that happened to you this year with respect to fans? Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if there's anything like individually standing up, but I go to a lot of shows and I go to yeah. you know places like Halifax Comic Con or um, you know whatever Comic Cons I end up at. Uh, celebration last year too, uh, not or the previous celebration. Like you meet people who have tattoos of your characters and they are so excited to meet you whether they're fans of star wars or whether they're just fans of mine in general um it's cool to meet people who are excited to meet you and almost to a person i I don't think i've had a bad experience uh at in person with fans they've been wonderful and they line up and they're excited and um and i honestly think those are the real fans anyway um People who just yell at you on Twitter don't. I mean, that's not. It's almost literally not what a fan is supposed to be. Fans exactly. are people who like things, yeah. Not people who <laughs> hate things. Like it just seems like to me that's an obvious. Like you don't need to listen to the people who all hate things. Yeah. Um, so no, it's been like sort of a great experience in terms of the person to person stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, you mentioned the writing shed, so I have to know. I mean, yeah. what do you have a daily routine? Do you have a, like a word minimum that you have to get to, or is there an, a time minimum? Um, generally speaking, I try to hit two to 3000 words a day. Mm -hmm. Um, and like the routine is I get up and I inhale coffee. Uh, I put coffee, like I literally carry it out with me to the shed in a craft. I make breakfast for my son and my wife and, you know, Uh kind of do that thing. And then I'm out. Uh, and then, you know, usually I'm checking email and doing a few administrative things and then I kind of get started. And it's usually, I try to write two to 3000 words over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, over the holidays, like now, I will. It's sort of cut mostly. I'm just like, did I write today? Good job, me. It's the holidays, <laughs> everything is crazy during the holidays, especially when you have a job. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's and then come January, I'll kind of get back to it in a harder, uh, faster sort of way and continue onward. How do you, how do you, I mean, does so your writing shed, yeah, um, without getting too specific, I mean, do you have internet out there? Oh, yeah. Okay, I have, so I have how- internet, I have a HVAC, I have heating, air conditioning, I have a ceiling fan, I have <laughs> a couch, fancy. it's great, it's super fancy. fancy. <laughs> yeah, it's damn fancy. So how do you tune that out? Like, how do you just sit down and say, I'm not, I mean, the internet's just a click, literally a click away, like, yeah. how do you avoid it and just get the work done? Uh, it's a combination of discipline and then uh, apps like uh, Mac Freedom, which just turn off your okay. access to the internet um, for a period of time. So it allows you to say like 45 yeah. minutes. I don't want, yeah, I don't want to see the internet. Just shut up okay. with the internet. Cause I mean, it's a, a hole. It's a hole. It really is. And it's so easy just to go click, click, click. And the next thing you know, it's three hours later. You're like, God uh, damn, I haven't done any work. And I have done that. I yeah. have totally done that. 
So okay, so I want to ask you. So I had Pat Rothfuss on the show. Good, excellent. And he he's such he a good is, guest. He's such he a good is guy. a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, but he is very vocal about there not actually being a thing as such a thing as writer's block. You know, he he says like there there are times when it is hard to write because of you know either mental health or something happening in your life that just prevents you from sitting at the computer or or keeps your mind occupied on something else. But he does not believe that writer's block, as most people conceive it, actually exists as a thing. Yeah, I'm just wondering where you come down on that. Probably pretty close. Um, I think writer's block is the same as mathematician's block or plumber's block. I think everybody gets <laughs> sort of, you know, challenged by the work and they sometimes find it's difficult and it can be difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, I do think there are specific things with writing that are worth sort of looking at, like, you know, uh, I mean, writer's block can be so many different kinds of things. It can be, you know, oh, I'm not in love with what I'm writing, but I'm forcing it or there was uh, something I broke something basically in the first act so that the third act just can't work. And I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. Or you tried to start the work before you were really done thinking about it. I mean, I, the book I have coming out this summer called Wanderers, I literally thought about this story for about four years and I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have answers for it. I didn't have it pieced together. I just but it, it haunted me. And then one day it was like it was there. And now it's two, uh, 280,000 word mega mega book that's coming out in the summer so you know that's like it's just one of those things that sort of happens sometimes it's a case of you know maybe you don't you like what you're writing but you haven't figured out why you care yet like there's you know we pump all these ideas and parts of ourselves into the work and if it's not um if we haven't curated like a reason for that if we haven't found a reason to care some themes some ideas some you know uh, emotional attachment to it then maybe we're kind of just having a hard time getting going with it um, and sometimes writer's block is not writer's block at all. It's depression. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then it's, you really can't figure it out just by like attacking. You can't attack depression the way you attack quote unquote writer's block. Right. Uh, it just doesn't work. You'll sink deeper into it. And so you have to be very cautious about that. And it's worth sort of, uh, checking that mental health as, as, as Pat sort of notes that it could be. Um, yeah. so it's not that it's, it's both not a thing, but there's also, it's like anybody can be blocked, but the reasons you're blocked as a writer are worth looking at. Yeah. Um, and the ways through are all kind of different. There's not like a single, I mean, the easiest way is to be like, well, you just write through it. And that can actually work most of the time. But a lot of the time, it's also not writing through it. It's thinking through it. And it's sort of like stopping and pulling away from it for a while and figuring out why. There's so many different fiddly bits. And a lot of that just comes down to knowing yourself as a writer and um, imagining you know, figuring out your process and cultivating sort of your, your intestinal flora, your, your instinct, uh, and figuring that all out. Yeah. Do you outline? I do because I hate it, but I need to do it. Does that help you? Like, do you think that helps you avoid, I guess, getting blocked? Yes, because it always gives me sort of some momentum. Like I, I always tell the story that when I, you know, Blackbirds took me five years to write and really it was because I was like, you ever walk into a room and you don't know why you went in there? And that was like me for Blackbirds. I would get about 75% of the way through the book and I'd just be like, I'm lost at the mall. I don't know what I'm (laughs) buying here. Oh, I'm in Bed Bath & Beyond. And then I would have to restart all over again. And so that was me for like five years. And then so I I did what every um, aspiring author who can't finish a book does. I won a screenwriting contest. (laughs) Of course. uh, (laughs) The goal with the screenwriting contest was uh, was with a guy named Stephen Susco. And the goal was to... um, uh, he, his sort of specialty was adapting pre-existing material to go to the screen. And so I kind of just was like, I told him, I'm like, this is sort of like a cheat. I mostly just want to ha- you to help me 
adapt my pre-existing garbage unfinished novel to a script so I can write it as a novel. <laughs> like I just, mm-hmm. I don't really want to write screenplays. That's cute. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I just want to figure this book out. And he was like, well, the first thing we're going to do is outline. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> we don't, we don't do that. You do that in Hollywood land. That's great. But like we, I like speak to squirrels. Yeah. Like, the, I receive, the muse the just muse. channels through you. Right? Yeah. I just, yeah. it's like I huff the muse fumes and then we're <laughs> all good. Uh, and he's like, no, really you have to outline. So I, I did. And it turns out like, then I was like, oh, I have a, I have a story like right yeah. here. It took me two miserable days of punching frozen beef and drinking whiskey, but I, like, I, <laughs> I have a story. And so, yeah, I, I am a, like a pantser by heart, but a plotter by necessity. Okay. And that's, that's sort of become your routine now when you when you sit down with a new story, you've just plotted out with an outline before you right. start writing. I do. And my outlines are not for human consumption. Like they're yeah. just for me. They're not like, I mean, unless, you know, sometimes a publisher wants them like Star Wars obviously wanted to see a, a, sure. at least a fairly loose outline. Um, sometimes mine are just like, I mean, they probably look like a deranged manifesto, but they help me. <laughs> yeah. They, they help me sort of focus uh, the lens of the story. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about the words and, and, and the quantity of words that just don't get published and just get scrapped or reworked or thrown away? Yeah, I do. And it's sort of sad, but I'll tell you what's weirder is thinking about publishing book publishing in comparison to Hollywood. Okay. Because so many, like that whole screenwriting thing that I did sort of actually took me on like, like I really did it. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, had a, I went to the Sundance screenwriters lab. Uh, I was accepted there. And then I, uh, with a writer friend of mine and um, we had a short film at Sundance the following year. And uh, we did this thing called Collapsus, which was uh, nominated for an international digital Emmy. And it was like, you meet all of these screenwriters and like, you know them for like X, Y, Z movie, right? One, two or three movies or something mm-hmm. like that. But they have written like 20, 30, 50 movies sure. that have never been made. And sometimes movies get, to a certain point where they start to make them and then they never get made. Mm-hmm. And it's such a strange, I could not imagine like writing books knowing that like, no knowing will, that nobody did, will yeah. ever see them, but still getting paid for them. Like yeah. it's not even like I'm writing them on spec. Like I'm hoping someone will publish my book. Okay, fine. But like I'm writing this book, you know, uh, penguin random house has given me $50,000 for it. I've written it. Uh, I've sent it to them. We've edited back and forth. Uh, we started to, here's a cover. Awesome. Cool. Let's get some book copy. Oh, it, sorry this year. We, you know what? It just didn't work out. We're not going to publish it. Oh, okay. Oh, that's like heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And then like screenwriters do that constantly. That's, I mean, I, it must take an entirely different type of person. Somebody who is just doing the work for the money, I guess. I mean, whether or not it's, it's I mean, for the they money, love but it, it's... but there's definitely a component there that you have to be more mercenary about yeah. your own work. Like you have to be like, yeah, well, this I could kill this baby. <laughs> like, yeah, this baby is. I love it for the moment, but I may need to drown it. But I feel like if you're writing, like if you're going to invest the energy and the time into writing a novel or a screenplay, yeah, like wouldn't you want people to experience that? God, you'd think. <laughs> It's so weird. It's such a strange. I can't even Holly, imagine it. Hollywood is so weird. It is. That's why, like, I couldn't. I always tell people, like, the key difference between New York publishing and Hollywood is that in New York, everything is no before it's a yes, which is yeah. how it should be. Like, nope, this isn't good enough. Nope, this isn't good enough. Ah, this is good enough. Now we're going to publish it. Hollywood, everything is yes before it's no. So they love you. They want to be in the Chuck Wendig business. They want to make, oh, this is the best thing, coolest thing. Ah, and then they just love you until they're like, mm, sorry, I can't work. Never mind. Or there's been a change in leadership here. We've all rotated positions and now you're out. 
Yeah. It's such a strange uh, way to be. I get it, but man, it's weird. Yeah, I don't I don't know how anybody could spend a career there doing that. And, and because they're they're just, tougher. Screenwriters are tougher. Like, I don't they're know just if it's like, tough. It's just so much scrapping. They have like broken right? bottles and they're just stabbing each other. It's like <laughs> we have to survive. It's like constant bar fight. Constant bar fight. Yeah. <laughs> We're much softer novelists. We're much much more delicate creatures. Um okay, I, this might be a can of worms, but it's a question I've asked a few different authors and I'm just curious your take on it. But uh-huh. for you personally, not the publisher answer, but for you, what's the difference between YA and quote unquote adult? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for me, YA is, uh, first of all, it should feature a young adult protagonist. Um, that to me is a defining feature of young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, curiously, not really a defining feature of everything else genre or age range wise. Um, otherwise, it's an age range, not really a genre. Right. Because um, young adult covers any genre you'd like. Mm-hmm. Uh, other, than, other than I think it, it should have a young adult protagonist and, and a secondarily, ideally, speak to issues and stories that are relevant to a young adult audience. Not exclusively, but primarily. Like, first and foremost, it's thinking about a young adult audience. Mm-hmm. So, a young adult protagonist in a young adult situation. I think that's it, really. That's it? Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. That's it. It seems to me that so much of the difference is is just arbitrary. It's just whatever whatever label a publisher decides to slap on or, or whatever section a bookstore decides, you know, if, if wherever there are still bookstores, where what section they decide to put it in because I mean, there are books I, I was reading a book that I was convinced was an adult book and then I saw the author on Twitter swearing up and down that it was oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, sw- I thought it was a YA book for the reasons that you just said because it was featured this young adult protagonist. It it spoke to the themes that I thought would resonate with that audience and she swore up and down that this was for adults. And I don't know if sometimes that's still the perception that YA is lesser even among it- authors can be yeah it can also be a, a publisher issue like um tor uh the science fiction publisher mm-hmm. is predominantly an adult a publisher of adult fiction um and it's always weird when you say adult it always sounds like pornography. yeah exactly adults, <laughs> wink wink waggle eyebrows <laughs> um but they have a lot of work that they do recognize is young adult either in origin or in um proximity and so they market it as crossover mm-hmm. so in other words it's an adult novel but it works as a young adult novel if you want to shelve it there. So you can send those authors out on either circuit to talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it also depends on sort of the authorial intent. Sometimes an author doesn't mean to write a young adult book, but uh, that's the publisher who buys it. Right. So, you right. know, yeah, that's where it starts to get a little flexible is on the publisher side of things. It was shifting when you first um, started writing with comics and was shifting between the media difficult for you? I mean, I, I have to imagine that going between YA and adult is not so hard to shift as going between prose novels and comic scripts. Well, you know, I, um, yes and no. Uh, going between young adult and adult can actually be like really a whiplash just because you have to be very cautious. Like I was really writing. I was going back and forth actually at one point between writing Star Wars and the Miriam Black books, which is mm. very, uh, very, very genre different. different. Yeah, very different books in terms of tone and uh, vulgarity and blood soakedness. <laughs> so, um, but comics is a whole different thing. And it took me a little while to get my head around it. And once I sort of realized that comics is sort of like it has the dimension of prose and that it, it's allowed to represent an internal realm, mm-hmm. um, the thoughts of characters uh, folded over a 
static sort of frozen image TV script. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I did practice writing TV. Uh, I never got anywhere, but we had a, um, a TV pilot with TNT at one point. And um, so, you know, that episodic, short, punchy component where you sort of like, just as how TV is orchestrated on, um, it's predicated on cr- getting people over the gaps of uh, uh, commercial breaks mm-hmm. in theory. Even even when there's no commercial breaks, they sort of still write that in that way that you want people to keep staying through. So when you end a scene, you want there to be a hook, a question mark, something that brings you to the act out, that brings you to the next act. And um, comics are very much like that. Like at the end of a page, like you're, you're kind of meant to leave on a reason to get someone to turn the page. Right. And the end of the issue is kind of a meant to get people to buy the next one. So um, once I sort of snapped my head around that actually became easier moving from prose to another format than it did from prose to prose, because it requires such different sort of intellectual muscles. Yeah. Story muscles are still there and the sort of the, the common bones are in there. Um, but it's, it expresses itself differently. So it was easier to sort of hop back and forth. And I could do two of those in a day. I couldn't write two books in a day. Right. Well, you're an author who write who, who, your new book, you said is 280,000 words, which is crazy. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but was it difficult to get that pithy, you know, to write a 32 page script that had, you know, I don't know how many words are generally in a comic, but you know, not that many. That is so hard. That part is the hard part is like, because there's not even 32. I wish it was 32. <laughs> 32 would be wonderful. When I like comics has changed even in the short time that I've done it. Mm-hmm. When I first started doing it, I think we had like 23 pages. Okay. Um, and then Marvel, by the end of working with Marvel, it was 20, 20 pages. Okay. And y- y- the 20 pages is not a lot. It's not a lot, especially <laughs> when a lot. some it, of the pages might have 50 words on them. Yes. And then like, you know, going like independent comics are tricky because they kind of really tend to only want to buy in for like three to five issues. Yeah. So you have to sort of like be willing and able to sum up your entire independent comic in three to five issues, like end it like we're done now. Yeah. But also with the recognition that, well, maybe there's going to be an issue six through 30. We just don't know. So you kind of have to have a story that's able to be stopped immediately or could go on forever. It's really <laughs> easy peasy. It's real. So easy. So great. Just do it. So the people who write comics are like really maestros at uh, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I mean, I, I always knew that, but I don't think I've really thought about that from a storytelling perspective that, you know, like let's wrap it up in five, but let's leave it open for the possibility of an ongoing with no end. Yeah. Yeah. That's not <laughs> yeah. easy to do. <laughs> it sounds like it's kind of like hell to me. Yeah, it's exactly. like very hard. It's very hard a to get my head around it. Yeah. I'm just not that gifted. I'm not that good. <laughs> if you weren't a writer, what would you be doing? Uh, just dying in the abyss. No, I, I, don't, I have no idea what I would be doing. Um, I mean, I've worked multiple jobs. I've worked at libraries and I've worked at, uh, uh, I did a systems technical analyst job. And I don't know. I don't know if I, there's, I think just death, just cold, <laughs> cold embrace of death. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's fair enough. You know, yeah. it's, it's your choice. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's work. It's work if you can get it. Good work if you can get it. Um, and this this might seem like a uh, out of left field, off the wall question, but Ooh. um, I, I think Treating. it really is interesting. The the responses are interesting in what they reveal. So you know, no 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 pressure. But what's what's the most important thing you've learned about being a father? Oh, that is left field. That's good. Um, boy, that's a tough one. That's mm. like a, there's so many things to talk about. In terms <laughs> of being a father. That's a whole other podcast. Uh, it's such a weird thing because 
you know, growing up with a father who did not, uh, for lack of a better term, understand me very much, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he never really wanted to meet me on my uh, playing field. There was no meeting me halfway on like the things like growing up when you're little, right? Uh, whatever your dad does, you're like, it's great. I just want to be involved. And yeah. then you go out and you do the things your dad does because that's just what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you get older and you start to establish an independent identity, you're like, I like these things now and they're different and new. And uh, my dad was not super thrilled that I liked things he didn't like. And he was very resistant to that. And so, you know, as our son is sort of growing up and, you know, he's seven now. And so we're trying to like, he's starting to get into things like, like Pokemon. I have, I missed Pokemon. I was too yeah. old for that window and it never was a thing that I needed to care about. So I never did. And so uh, he's super into it. And like, I mean, like immediately out of nowhere super into it he knows things about pokemon that i'm not sure the people who made pokemon know about pokemon. <laughs> and i don't know how because he doesn't have access to the internet right so i don't know where he just learned, learned like, these things my son is someone, also seven so yeah. i know what you're uh, talking about <laughs> oh yeah someone comes into their room at night and tells them about pokemon which is, is creepy but at the same time they seem to learn things yeah. so uh so I, instead of being like well i don't want to know about that go to hell child. <laughs> I try to like learn and I try to be invested and be interested in it and join him on his thing. And he can teach me about it and uh, you know, and just learn. Yeah. And then the other thing I think is sort of um, inoculating them against disappointment. Uh, I think there is a component where um, I don't believe in like tough love and your kids need to learn that life sucks. It's not that it's just like, I, I watch some people's children they have literally no capacity to handle mm-hmm. even the tiniest bit of bad news, like simple, tiny bad news. Like, no, you cannot have a cookie. Right. Well, I'm going to have a, a rage poop now. <laughs> just like, just like utter meltdown because they can't do that. And mm-hmm. I think very early on sort of inoculating your kids. Like we would literally be like kind of arbitrarily be like, we're going to have to t- take this thing away from you for a little while. Just to, just to, you just need to learn that sometimes things are not always going to go your way mm-hmm. and how you deal with those things is really important. And then talking him through those things and not just being like a jerk about it be like, ha ha, this sucks for you. But like sort of working him through the emotions and talking to him about what that makes him feel and how he can uh, adjust and address it uh, is, is tough, but I think necessary. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing a good job. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I, I don't know. Well, we're all making yeah. it up as we go. I'll let you know what his therapy bills are and then we'll, we'll go from there. But yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, my son is also seven. My daughter is, is nine and I'm going through exactly the same things. They're just now branching out into liking things that I have no idea what they're talking about, but yep. I try, you know, I try to connect and as long as yeah. you know, at this age, they're willing to let us connect you know, it's right. Like, yeah. When they're like in their teens, yeah. they're going to be like, dad, you're being weird. now. Exactly. Like dad, go. I ahead. listen to your music. <laughs> no, no dad. Hello, fellow kids. Exactly. It's all I think about yeah. is that, yeah. that, um, <laughs> Um, that that gif that everybody uses <laughs> yep exactly by the way gif good job hey <laughs> you didn't say gif you said gif i heard it i did say it um okay i agree with you i I'm, i say it gif I, i'm not uh, knocking you by the way no, no, no. It, it, that's how you say it right that's how you say it yeah. that's how the creator said they say it. that's right thank you yeah. yeah we're you know we'll just sit over here in our gif club <laughs> we'll just in our gif club <laughs> gif club i uh, yeah finally and then i will let you go uh-huh. if you could be any kind of candy what would you be Oh, any kind of candy. Well, I mean, I feel like I should be like something disgusting, so no one wants to eat me, so I can continue living on, like a, like like a Mary Jane or a peanut, like something horrible, yeah. like a circus peanut. Cir- no, nobody likes circus peanuts, peanuts. and they're also indestructible. You can't destroy those things, not with fire, not with knife. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, I'd be a circus peanut, and so no one could eat me. Nice. 
Good answer. And then I would survive. I would survive the apocalypse, honestly. I'll survive global warming yeah. as a circus. Even the roaches won't touch circus peanuts. No, roaches, no. They're smarter than that. Yeah. No, the, yeah. we're going to leave this world a fiery hellscape full of roaches and circus peanuts. Yep. And we deserve it. We totally deserve honestly. it. We have yeah. only ourselves to blame. So true. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>